1: And I like the solo scriptura, which means it's only in Scripture. There was no other books beyond Scripture, so our sufficiency is found in God's Word. So if you recall, I like to use the phrase, and I use it often, and I hope you do as well, that we are, as a Christian, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, because of the Word of God alone. And so I hope that perhaps... That, that would draw you closer to the Lord. But sometimes people, they really get hung up on really studying all of this systematic theology, which is good to do. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But sometimes we get into almost so much of that that we forget that there is a real person, a God person, which is Christ. And I so much appreciated the songs that were selected today because that middle song, if you remember, it talked about Jesus the Messiah and then it talked about him being Lord of all. And then the last one, it's only Christ. Now, that being the case, that's why we are at a special part of Scripture where we're going to talk about the person of Jesus Christ being God in the flesh and what He was doing to prepare for that final passion when He then goes to the cross to pay for all of our sin. Now, today, you'll notice that there is a large bite of Scripture and some of you are wondering, should you have brought your lunch with you today? Well, I hope not. I am going to go through it pretty quickly because I want to hit some of the high points of it. And we're calling it Jesus Stands Trial, of course, but I want you to know it's more than just the historical nature of him standing trial and what he did. I want you to know that there is a big contrast in here. You're going to see who Christ is, of course, and what he did, but you're also going to see other people that are involved in this. And as we go through this event, you're going to see how righteous Christ is, and the more that we are looking at what Christ did and who he is, we saw how wrong man was. But as you even go through this, as you study this material, you might be looking at it as a historical document. You also need to know that behind all of this is what we might call the war of the ages between God and Christ. We call that that particular war. Now, we know who wins it. We know who's in control and we know who permits and prescribes. It's the Lord. But we see that even coming out at this particular time. And so as you look at this, as we go through this material, I don't want you to look at it. as just a bunch of historical data. Most of you have read through all of this before. I'd like you to see more than just historical data, but I want you to see two things for you and me today. Number one, and that is this, that God loves you and that this is a part of His plan of demonstrating His love. And let me give you a parenthesis on that. When we talk about Jesus Christ giving His life, we immediately go to His death and resurrection, which is the real final part of that that gives us eternal life. I get that and you get that, and that's the hallmark of our faith. At the same time, we need to know that his whole life was being given to us. And if you want to take him all the way back to when Jesus was born, he actually gave up the last room that was in Bethlehem. He gave every little sleeping arrangement up to others. And he himself, when he was born, he was born in a stable and then laid in a manger as the very last place that he could be so others could have a bit of comfort, except perhaps his mom and dad at that time. So his whole life was being given. And you're going to see that in an event and how he... Did something for Peter when Peter stepped out of line toward the end there. Again, he's giving his life for you and me. So number one, it's that love. The second is, is although we're focusing on Christ, I want you to also know that he did this for you. That he cares for your life. That he is involved in your life. He is engaged in who you are. I hope you know by now that you were in the mind of God before you were ever born and placed in your mother's womb and then born, and that there is a purpose for your life, and part of that purpose was for you to come today or perhaps in the past where you would hear the message of salvation, and you came to faith in Christ, and now you have an, an eternal purpose. And again, you're going to see how even that was wrapped around his purpose in what he did for us as he was going to the cross. And there's some wonderful information in here to show you his love and that he does care for you and me. So if you have your Bibles, let's begin going through John chapter 18. I'm going to give you a little bit of background and then we're going to go through John 18 and hopefully all of the verses today in the time that I have. Now if you're here today without a Bible, I'd like you to know that there are Bibles in the racks of the chairs in front of you and if you have one, I'm going to be using the New American Standard Bible and that'll be on page 87 in the New Testament and we're just going to stay in one place today. So if you will, just go to John 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, when I go through John 18 today, there's a lot of information about him, particularly as he is apprehended, so to speak, and as he goes through the trial. And then in the future, weeks ahead, we're going to talk about his death and his burial, his resurrection, etc. But as we go through that kind of material, I hope that as you learn this material, you're going to see that even with John and what he writes, he is not giving you the complete story of what went on during his trials. Now, some of you might go... Well, not really, because you also have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many of you at your house, when you turn your television on or perhaps even your stereo on, you have what is called surround sound? How many of you have a surround sound system in your home? Would you raise your hand? How many of you got? Some of you have that. That means that there are certain sound will come out of this speaker and another set of sound will come out of that speaker, but it's all part of a bigger song. And so it's all connected, but you hear different parts. Well, even though I'm going through John 18 today, let me encourage you to go into your Bibles and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and read the same story. It's not that they're contradicting each other, but if you put it all together very carefully, you're going to get a beautiful surround sound symphony of what Christ was going through before he actually then was um, tortured and crucified and then died and rose again. We're going to get into that in future weeks. And something else about John, so you understand this, He begins in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and he begins to talk about the life of Christ only through a few months of his life, not his three years of his life. And then he begins to go over the last week of his life, and then from the last week of his life, he spends a great deal of time on the last few hours of his life. In fact, that's where we are now, beginning the last few hours of the life of Christ. And so he really kind of hones in on that kind of material. And so if you understand that, that'll help you know why he spent a little bit more time speaking about certain parts of the trials and not other parts of the trial. So let's pick it up. If you recall, we've already covered his discourse to his disciples after they left the upper room. Then he had this high priestly prayer for them, and it begins in verse 1. And here's what you read as he's left Jerusalem now, and he's headed towards Gethsemane. And he says this in verse 1. When when it says in verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, which would be the discourse and then the prayers to the Father about the disciples and you and me, we spent many weeks on John 17, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now for you, that's just a little bit of information, maybe some data. But if you plunge deeper into the understanding of where was this and why did this happen, you're going to understand that there is a very sovereign God that was working. It wasn't some guy in history that was starting a religion and got a raw deal at the end and everybody felt sorry for him and now we have Christianity. It wasn't like that at all. There was a lot going on in this. When it talks about him here now speaking these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of that Kidron Valley area. You might be interested to know this. He's left the upper room. He's now getting to a place of prayer in Gethsemane. He'll be returning back to Jerusalem again with the uh, soldiers, etc. And this particular Kidron Valley, if you're not familiar with it, is mentioned quite frequently in Scripture, generally during a time of suffering or pain. If you recall, this was the place that David had walked from Jerusalem as he's leaving Jerusalem when his son Absalom basically took over the kingdom and he walks over this... Kidron Valley area and his pain and suffering, leaving the people that he loves so much and knowing that he is going to leave it to his son and all the confusion and embarrassment that he was going through. So it was a place of pain. But more than that, this little Kidron Valley, this little ravine here is what they call in Israel a wadi, W-A-D-I, a wadi. A wadi is usually between two higher pieces of ground as a cut out piece like a creek or a small river we might say. It's dry most of the year except when there's a great deal of rain or when there's a snow melt higher up in the hill country or mountains. Now, for us to make it more practical, Carol and I, we live in a valley that is pretty narrow. It's called the Kuli'o Valley, and it's very windy. That's why it's called Kuli'o, thundering wind. It's narrow, so a lot of air comes through that. But when it rains up on top of Kuli'o, which is a famous hiking trail, I hope you have an opportunity to go there, the water will rush down our valley and about forty years ago it wiped out a whole bunch of houses and businesses down near Kalani island highway now since then they have carved out three wadis in our valley now we have the deepest wadi right behind our house now when we bought the house we were wondering well, we have floods over here and they assured us that we wouldn't and during the forty days of rain that our island had we didn't have many more than maybe six or seven inches in our little concrete wadi that was behind our house so that's what was there. So that means that liquid will flow into that wadi where he was coming over. Now that's just on the other side east of the of the city of Jerusalem this Kidron Valley is, but it's also a few hundred feet below the temple site. And now we're getting into something that's even more particular. If you recall, during Passover, that was a time that the Jewish people would then give forth a lamb and they would sacrifice this lamb, as it goes back to the Old Testament story about when they were being um, uh, released or fleeing from Egypt. The story tells us now that 10 years after the time Christ had his death experience here and he rose again, they were still doing the Passovers because the temple wasn't destroyed. And historians tell us that they slaughtered some 260,000 lambs 10 years after this during the same period of time. Now when they did this, they would do it at the temple site and they had this little thing going where it would kind of take all that blood from all those lambs and it would come out through the temple and it would spill over into this Kidron Valley, this ravine. So there would often be blood in here and perhaps some water if it was coming off the wintertime. There was a heavy snow melt. Now I want you to think for just a moment, here is Jesus with his disciples coming out of uh, the Jerusalem area, going up to the Mount of Olives to a garden called Gethsemane, and he's walking across an area where there will be blood that'll be just washing down this valley. And again, if you remember our study when we were early on in John, behold the Lamb of God that was going to be slain for the sins of the world, and here he is going to his own slaughter. I could only imagine what it was like when he was going over that because we know in just a few moments here that he knew all things that were coming at him. In other words, he knew the tsunami of events that were going to hit him. And so he knew all about that. I'm only wondering, the disciples that were with him, the 11 guys because Judas had already run off, I want you to know if they were wondering what was going to happen in this particular valley and there's the Lamb of God and the other lambs are going to be slain for Passover and this is he's coming through the same section at this time. Well, let's go back into the passage here. It says here he stepped over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Verse 2 says, Now Judas also, who is betraying him, knew the place where Jesus often met with his disciples. Now, in this passage, it talks about this garden. In others, it refers to Gethsemane. Well, that's a word we don't use very often because that word Gethsemane actually means olive press. Now you hear a lot about him going up to the Mount of Olives and he gave a wonderful message there and you could read that especially in other discourses but the point still being it means an olive press. It was a place where there was the pressure placed upon the olives to bring that olive oil that would come out. Interesting enough that Jesus would go to a particular garden. That garden was called, that particular garden, Gethsemane. Now those that have done some study on this, you're going to find that inside Jerusalem you wouldn't find a lot of gardens for one reason. Often the Jewish people would have to take care of their gardens and to do that they'd have to fertilize it and in the Jewish law and custom they couldn't do that because you couldn't put dung on this inside Jerusalem. It's too near the temple, etc. They need to be pure. So it would be done outside. And so this was outside the center part of Jerusalem. And it also would be owned generally by wealthy people because there wasn't a lot of land for this. There was a lot of rocky area out there. So wealthy people generally fell in the direction of having this kind of property. We don't know who this guy is, who owned this land, but we know this. Jesus found that place of Gethsemane, a place that he would go to often, that he would pray there. I'm wondering at times that he would go to a place that was quiet, it was secluded, a place he could center down on God. If you don't mind me, just give a little application to you and me. Do you have your own Gethsemane, your garden? Maybe it's a garden where you have pressure in your life that you want to go and release that pressure to the Lord decisions that you have to make things that you're going through but that maybe every day you have your own little place of Gethsemane Now I know you can do it on the, online and internet and all that and look at the screen but you have a private place where that just you and the Lord have an opportunity to meet now we know he did this often because Judas kind of knew where he could find Jesus when he was going to bring all those soldiers to meet him so he knew about Gethsemane and knew that Jesus would probably be there in that particular garden let's go back to the passage here if you will when it says here, now, Judas also is betraying him. I like the particular tense. He was handing him over to the enemy, so to speak. He's betraying him. So it wasn't just one little step. It was a series of events that Judas was doing. The negotiating of the price and where they were going to meet and how they were going to identify who Christ was. So it was a, a process. There was a scheme going on that Judas was doing. And Jesus already knew about that. And you're going to see how that he, uh, God upped to that and showed us how he was. Let's go back to the passage again, and it says, For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then verse 3, it says, Judas then having received the Roman cohort. Which now we begin the trials. Most theologians, as they go through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they will say that there are primarily six trials that goes on. Now that may not mean a lot to you, but what would be important for you to know is that out of the six trials, that these trials actually represent a civil trial and a religious trial. Now, one scholar says that it's actually one civil trial with three phases. Another one says it's one religious trial with three phases. Now, you can try to dissect it all that you'd like. I will tell you this, that John does not cover all six trials. He does cover a portion of what we might call the religious trial. He does cover a portion of the civil trial. So we do get a flavor of it. I'm throwing another trial in, maybe a little bit more rhetorically that's not actually a part of those six trials, but one that maybe you and I can identify with, and that would be the trial of Peter. Because Jesus stood trial in front of Peter, meaning what did Peter think of Jesus and how did Peter treat Jesus? You know, What did Peter do with Jesus during this particular time? And I put that as a little bit of a trial because... I wonder if you and I put Jesus on trial almost every day by our thoughts and our words and our action that we ask him or demand out of him to perform or to show himself or to defend himself in some way. And so maybe we do that. And so I kind of put that as a rhetorical trial in there and you'll see. So today, in the little bit of time that I have left, I want to cover four trials. Three of them are easily found in scripture. And then the fourth one is the one about Peter. So let's begin looking at it. And the first one I want to talk about is the Roman soldier trial. Now, it wasn't an official trial, but it was finding out who he was and taking him to where he needed to go. So picking it up at verse 3 here, let's look at it together. It says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Let's pause for a moment on that you need to know some background so you understand what is going on at this particular time was the Passover so Jerusalem was teeming with Jews that would come from all over Israel for this Passover time there was a constant tension between the Jewish people and Rome and Rome and the Jewish people and I wish I had time to unpack that so you could understand how and why there's all that tension but it was there and to keep the lid on all of this tension, Roman, the Romans, they had the upper hand with all their weaponry and force and power and authority and all of that. They would send in battalions of soldiers there to make sure that they could keep the peace. It's like when you and I know that there's going to be a particular event, they always bring in more police. The police presence could be there. That's happening. So with the Romans, some of those battalions could be as large as 2,000. So the question is, is how many of the soldiers of the Romans came to pick up Jesus here and take him away? Well, some think it could be all 2,000 of them or even more. My personal opinion is I don't think so. I doubt that. The reason being is I don't know that they would have taken all the Roman soldiers that were in Jerusalem and sent them after this one person who they thought was blaspheming or was treasonous or whatever. I do believe it was large enough And so with a little bit of kind of guessing and passaging and all of that, I think it could be the number between 60 or 100 guys, maybe even up to 200. Now to you that may not mean a lot, but I want you to think for just a moment the reality of it. The reality of it is 200 well-seasoned killing machines were going after one guy who didn't carry a weapon, who preached peace, who was the light of the world, who didn't rabble-rouse personally anyone, is there with just a bunch of fishermen and a few other little guys, and there they are sending this army of guys. But it didn't just say that. Look in the passage. Besides, these guys coming to take Jesus away, it also says here, there was also officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. We will call that now the temple police. So you have the civil soldiers, and then you have the religious police that are representing those two groups. So now you see both entities coming for Jesus, Now, back to the passage. It says that when they came to them, it says they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, in other passages, the weapons were swords and they were clubs. Now, I thought this was quite interesting as well. Because while they're coming after Jesus, they still didn't know exactly what he looked like. We also know that it was at night. And in their minds, they probably thought that this guy was going to cause trouble. So they brought their weaponry in case Jesus would rise up against them. Even then, I think that's odd again against that size of crowd that's well-trained. But they also brought their lanterns so that in case this Jesus decided to run and to flee and maybe to hide in the bushes, they might be able to see him. But a little side note would be that Passover is usually on a full moon, and they really didn't need to see that either. The other interesting fact is Jesus already said that uh, he is our peace. Paul refers to him as that. We also know that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So he is the peace, so they didn't need weaponry. And he's the light of the world, so technically they really didn't need to bring all those lanterns. And when you see the passage, you're going to see what Jesus did that is very odd for someone to respond in such a way as he did when people are coming against them, especially when you don't deserve it. So this is all going on. Now, what's not said in this passage is what's happening with Judas. Well, we know a lot about the background, but I would like you to know that John does not give Judas a great deal of press. He kind of gives Judas a little comment to let us know that Judas is still there. He's observing all of this, so you know that he's not left out of the story, but not a lot of press. What is interesting is that Judas is now leading these guys. So he got these soldiers, policemen, and he's bringing them now to Jesus. So he's kind of leading them. He's kind of showing them which way it is. But now he has to point out which of these 11 guys would be Jesus. What does he do? Well, we know another passage. He kissed Jesus. Now, the Oriental custom is you would kiss someone on their feet, you might kiss them on their garment, certainly, you could kiss them on their hand. But if you were intimate as a friend, you would kiss them on the cheeks or maybe even on the lips. And again, this is fulfilled prophecy for those of you that are outside the faith and you're wondering, is this just another story? Jesus continually fulfills and allows to be fulfilled things that were said. Like his own familiar friend Judas who turns on him from the book of Psalms when Judas then kisses him. On the and you know what's so interesting is that Jesus is knowing all of this ahead of time of what's going on. Well, Let's go back here. So it says here that these guys came up, the behind the scene. Judas is kissing him. Verse 4 says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, and then it talks about what he does. If you do not have that phrase underlined in your Bible, may I suggest that you do that? This again is showing to you and to me the omniscience of God. This is showing to you and to me that he knows all things, the end from the beginning. In fact, we know in scripture that he knew man would fall before man would fall and he had the plan of salvation already in place and it would begin to be in motion from the time man fell all the way to this very moment right here. He knew all things ahead of time. Well, we've been giving you a lot of history about who Jesus is and I hope you could really respect that he's not just a man or a beginner of some religion, but that he is God himself. But I want you to know this. He also knows all the beginnings of your life and all the endings of your life. He knows everything about your life. He knows what's going to happen this afternoon. He knows what's going to be on your job tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen a year from now. He knows all things about you and he loves you and every detail of your life is a part of his life that he cares for for you. And so you are never alone, and God's plan for you is huge, and you are important. We'll go back to this passage again. We're still in this Roman soldier trial, so to speak. So it talks about him knowing all these things ahead of time and how important that is to him. And then it says, And he went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? I like that phrase, he went forth. Generally, when someone is coming at you, you're going to kind of step back. He didn't do that. He stepped forward into this. Again, that goes back to what I said at the beginning of the message, and that is that he gave his life. He stood in front of the other guys that were with him. He went to the action. I like to think that the Lord also goes before you and me when we have to face action in our life, but let's go back here a little bit to the passage. So he went forth to them, And he begins to speak with them. And he says, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Now, I don't know what translation of the Bible that you have, but the one I have, it has the word he in italics. I am he. Now, they did a good job because they capitalized the he because that's who he is, he's God. But if you're following along in a Greek New Testament, you're not going to find the word he there. All you're going to find is the phrase, I am period. That's it. Now that fits with all that he's been teaching ahead of time that we've already studied in John. I am, I am, I am, I am without the he. I am the great I am. That's referring again to his Godhead. Notice the response of what happened after that occurred. It said, here I am and Judas also who was betraying him was standing with him. We already covered that. So when he said to them, I am again, they drew back and fell to the ground. Amazing, isn't it?